IndyCar fans, it's time to start your engines. Welcome to Pit Pass Indy, a production of Evergreen Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Martin, a journalist who regularly covers the NTT IndyCar series. Our goal at Pit Pass Indy is to give racing fans an insider's view of the exciting world of the NTT IndyCar series in a fast-paced podcast featuring interviews with the biggest names in the sport. I bring nearly 40 years of experience covering IndyCar and NASCAR, working for such media brands as NBCSports.com, SI.com, ESPN Sports Ticker, Sports Illustrated, Auto Week, and Speed Sport. So let's drop the green flag on this episode of Pit Pass Indy. If ever there was a driver that embodied the glamour and lifestyle of being a professional racer in the 1980s, it was Danny Sullivan. On this episode of Pit Pass Indy, we're completing our deep dive into the great career of the 1985 Indianapolis 500 winner and 1988 kart IndyCar champion. He dated beautiful women who were models and actresses, including Christy Brinkley and Lisa Hartman, before she married actor-singer Clint Black. Sullivan even modeled himself for Town & Country magazine. Sullivan's appeal was so strong, he was cast in an episode of the iconic 1980s television show Miami Vice in the episode Florence, Italy. He played a race car driver accused of murdering a prostitute with some of the filming scenes in Pit Lane of the Miami Grand Prix. He played golf with the greats of the game and struck up a friendship with Greg Norman that continues today. Sullivan was an A-list celebrity. He was the epitome of what many in the mainstream thought a race driver should look like. But deep down, Sullivan was a true racer. It was a long path that brought the driver from Louisville, Kentucky to stardom. In an exclusive interview with the 71-year-old Sullivan from his home in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida recently, we covered so much ground that we had to make this a two-part episode. Last week, we talked about Sullivan's path into auto racing, from working odd jobs in New York City in 1970 to taking a course at the Jim Russell Driver's School at Snetterton, England as a 21st birthday present later that year. Sullivan climbed the ranks all the way to Formula One with famed team owner Ken Terrell and the Benetton Formula One team in 1983. This episode covers his IndyCar career. He entered the series with team owner Doug Shearson in the Domino's Pizza Car in 1984. But it was in 1985 when Sullivan joined Team Penske that his career flourished. Sullivan's spin and win in the 1985 Indianapolis 500 remains one of the most iconic moments in the last 40 years of the famed race. That started Sullivan's glory days with team owner Roger Penske in the 1980s when the driver became an A-list celebrity. Here is part two of my exclusive interview with the great Danny Sullivan. So the Benetton money goes away, and then Doug Shearson comes in. And yep. was Cart even a series on your radar screen at that time? Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, you know, I followed what was going on, um, like like I do on all racing. You know, you you know, you're always keen on that stuff. But I, but the answer is not not really. You know, because I I got in this Formula One drive. I had a three year deal, and and I I had tried to broker a deal with uh, Tolman Group and Ken 
to put up some money for because Brian Hart, I don't know if you remember that engine, he had a turbo engine. And it was it wasn't one of the BMWs or the Renaults or Ferrari. You couldn't get those. And um, I actually tried to broker a deal. I said, "Look, why don't you guys do so you can, you, you know, you can be in the turbo charge deal, and both of you put in a little bit of money, um, and it'll it'll help, you know." And but but I think Kim always was was um, in belief that uh, Ford was going to come back and rescue him, and in terms of that. You know, I think he held out that Ford was going to uh, step in. And uh, anyway, um, so when the thing came, I'd gone to the Phoenix race, as I said, on the way home and to Colorado. And I met Doug, and when he started saying something, I kind of looked at it and went, well, maybe I better rethink this. But I hadn't, it wasn't in the forefront of my thoughts. Okay, that is, that is true. So you come back to the United States and you're driving a cart and you had some success with Doug Shears and he helped put you on the map. And it also really seemed like you knew how to market yourself. You knew how to market the sponsor. Uh, the Domino's pizza car was one of the most identifiable cars in cart and IndyCar racing at that time. Do you feel that you were always a little bit of a step ahead in understanding the marketability that you had? Um, I don't know if I'd ever... You know, like I said, pat myself on the back and say I was ahead. Uh, let me go back to two things because, again, like like all this stuff, you know, you you'd like to take credit and and think that you were that smart. But I, when I was a gopher for for Ken Terrell, okay, and I said that I, you know, remember I said I I gophered around some for Jackie Stewart. I pick up Helen and so forth like that. But I hung out with them and was around them. And Jackie was one of the true great first professionals, okay, in the sport, okay? He understood it. I mean, I think Jackie might still have a contract with Ford. He's still with Rolex. He's still with Hanukkah. Yeah, I think he might still be with Goodyear. You know, Jackie was just the ultimate and consummate professional in that in that perspective. And one of the things that um, happened to me when I drove for Formula One, and another little lesson. Okay, remember I told you I was driving that Formula Ford Eldon? Okay, well, the two the two works cars, so I'm just a, a car that they put under their umbrella. But the two works cars were um, Mike Catlow, who had the garage where they were building them originally, and a guy named Chris Smith, two English guys, good, good guys, good drivers, you know, journeyman Formula Ford guys and so forth. And at one of my first races, at Silverstone on the club circuit. I'm over there kind of polishing the car and working on a car. And they, they're sponsored by Catnick Steel Lentils. Okay. They, lentils are window and door frames. Okay. Metal, metal ones. And they were the sponsor on the team, orange, black, and white. And I'm sitting there polishing the car. And these, there was a couple of kids walking around and they're asking questions. And I'll never forget because Catlow, Mike was a, you know, he didn't like to talk a lot anyway, and he kind of shoot him away and just that and the other. Anyway, I, I, these kids come over and they're asking me questions. So I'm talking to them, tell them some stuff, da 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 da. And and I had a good result and beat both of those guys. And I think I finished fifth. It wasn't a wasn't a great, you know, wasn't a stellar result. But you know, you're a new guy. It's like my third race. It was pretty good, you know. So I'm at the factory on Monday after the race and. 
I get called in by one of the Hampshire brothers and said, the owners and the builders of the, of the Elvin, and they said, we're going to make you a factory car. And I said, really? He says, yeah, the owner wants to, owner wants to uh, back your car. And I said, I didn't have that good a result. You know, I'm, I said, really? Why? Uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I didn't have that good a result. He says, well, you remember those two little kids you were talking to? at the track and I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, those two kids are Catherine and Nicholas, cat Nick steel lentils. Okay. And just from that, and that was one of the things that Jackie had always told me, he said, you know, it's always better to be friendly with the fans and, and stuff like that than not because they're the ones paying your way. And that got started. And then Benetton, now, uh, you know, we go along and, you're, you're, and remember something. I'm an American. We mentioned no internet, anything like that. Okay, how do I raise the money to go racing, you know, in Europe? You know, there's no exposure for any uh, in the in the junior formulas. Even to this day, there's almost no exposure for anybody. You know, so how do you raise the money? And uh, you know, long story short, you know, things coming. I'm driving for Benetton, and Luciano Benetton asked me to meet him after the Long Beach Grand Prix on the street corner in Westwood, California. You know, where UCLA is. And I meet him, and he's standing there. You know how on the street corner sometimes they have like 10 or 15 uh, places where you'd have um, uh, newspapers? You know, they, they have the one for USA Today, New York Times. And he's standing there, and he's got all these papers out on top. Well, I, I brought a friend of mine, Claude Ravier, with me because my, my Italian was really minimal. And Luciano's English, we, we, we both challenged each other, but we could – have a conversation at dinner, but he wanted to talk about something. So I brought a guy to translate and, uh, and he was reading the papers. He said, I see your name in the paper and I see Tyrrell's name in the paper. He said, how do I get, how do I get Benetton's name in the paper? And Claude didn't even translate for me. He just answered him. He said, in America, you have to have a, a PR guy. You need to have a PR guy. And he says, well, then we need to get Danny a PR guy. And so Claude came out of the entertainment industry. He was Swiss, but spoke four or five languages. Um, he he said to them, uh, he knew somebody. So it was this guy, Alan Nirob, at Rogers and Callan. Alan's now runs Rogers. He's the CEO of Rogers and Callan. And he had, and so we met, and he didn't know anything about racing, but we met and we got along great. And he said, "Okay, I'll take you on." And that's how it started. So then, then he started educating me really on how you really market in America, and and when I say market, uh, to get the publicity, to get out there, okay, and and so, um, but but after Benetton did it the first year, okay, they they paid for it the first year, but after they did it the first year. It, was, it had been such a success for me, I, I paid for it myself from that point forward, you know, because I realized that if I'm going to be, think, think about this for a second, Bruce. We're, think about, you're, you're a sponsor, and you're sitting there, and there's three or four drivers, all with, a, with the same kind of resume. A couple wins here, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. They all, we all look roughly the same. You know, you've all got the same kind of an appearance, all that sort of stuff. 
what sets you apart for the sponsor. And that's, and that's basically the publicity that you generate for those, for the sponsors. And do you remember the name Alex Ribeiro? Yes. He was a Formula Three guy. Remember he had Jesus Saves was on his car. Okay. And I knew Alex really well. He was, he and I tied in the championship, going to want it. So I got to know Alex pretty well. Nice guy. Really nice guy. You know how he got his sponsor? I said, well, you know, while the Brazilians come over, I said, how, how do you get your sponsorship? And he said, Danny, he said, I take every newspaper article, every story, everything, every TV exposure, everything. I, I take that. I monitor all and I figure out what it would cost for the sponsor to get that exposure a year. And I ask for 10%. And so when, so I'm just giving you examples of lessons that I kept learning along the way. Okay. How do I make myself more about, I had for a small, small period of time, some Marlboro sponsorship, just more personal stuff. Um, but this before, before you marbles and then this was when I was in Europe doing formula two, you know why they pay, you know what they paid me for? Uh, they didn't pay for the me. They gave me money, uh, for the, I had to, wherever I went, whatever team, they wanted me to tour the U S military bases in, in Germany and sign autographs for the military personnel at the PXs and stuff like that. It was all promotion. It was all about promotion, but that's how I could get some money. Okay. Yeah. I got to go. I got to go to a PX and sit there and autograph and stuff like that. Okay. That's what it takes to get it done. That's what I'll do. But you, I'm not going to mention any names, but you'd be surprised how many people with my success that I had from a marketing perspective tied in with what I did in the, in the, in the, on the track. Okay. Cause you can't, you can't just do one. You got to have both. They got to, they've got to tie in, you know, they got to, you got to have some success on the track or you're just, you know, you're just promoting. Okay. And, and one, a couple of guys, and I'm not going to mention names, asked me, you know, how I did it and what I did. And I walked through them and told them about, you know, Rogers and Callum and this, that, and the other. And these guys looked at me and they said, there ain't no way I want to do that. I'm not going to work at that stuff. You know, so that it's just, it was a different mindset, you know, and, and I'm not knocking that. I mean, you know, it's not all fun. It's not all easy. It's not all good. It's a, it can be a real, you know, can be a real pain, but I had to make my, make myself that way, you know, to, to, to raise the money for me to be, go spot, you know, go racing, you know? So that's, that's how it was, you know? And, you know, some of it was good. I could have done better deals on, on some of it and not. And you could, you know, some people probably argued, well, if you focus more on the racing, you know, yeah, there's that side, but I would have never gotten there if I hadn't, hadn't been able to do it, you know, and, and guys like Garvin Brown weren't going to just, you know, you needed to, you know, have companies like Miller beer that, that they ask you to do an awful lot of stuff and over and above. So, well, speaking of Miller Beer, 1985, you get hired by Team Penske, Roger Penske. You're sponsored by Miller Beer, the Miller American car. And that was one of the great seasons of your career. Of course, you won the Indianapolis 500, one of the more dramatic Indianapolis 500s. It's always known as the spin and win. 
How did you get together with Roger? And if you could just bring us through that season, especially with uh, the Indianapolis 500. Well, it started back again um, with Frank Faulkner. Um, so I had a had a really successful season with Doug and Dennis Swan and the whole team. Okay, all the guys there. I, had a, I really liked the guys. Really enjoyed it. And I was having a bit of a, a, a bit of a battle, not a battle, but just a debate over some of the contract for the next year. Um, um, you know, for the for the next year. And I can't go into all the details. And and um, Kent, uh, sorry, Ken, Roger called Dr. Faulkner, who everybody knew Frank, okay, just from his years, you know, kind of behind the scenes and so forth. And he called Frank and said, does Danny have a contract for the next year? And Frank said, you know, I don't know. Okay, let me, I mean, uh, Roger, let me find out. And so he called me and said, do you have a contract? I said, well, ironically, I don't. I'm, I'm having a little bit of a, you know, back and forth negotiation with Doug on, on a couple. You know, they were small points. They're not anything big. And so, and he told me what it was about and everything. And, you know, when he found out, Doug called, I mean, uh, Roger called me and said, uh, just to confirm you don't have a contract with, with Doug for next year. And I said, no. And he says, would you, I'd like to meet with you and and uh, and discuss, you know, driving for us. And I said, great. And he said, are you going to be back east? Because I was living out west. And I said, actually, I'm in. I'll be in New York. So anyway, we set up to meet at a, a for dinner one night. <laughs> and you know, and Rogers, he's amazing. But we met. And we had a very nice dinner. Social talked about a bunch of stuff, racing, promotions. There, you know, it was it was a little bit social, but mostly business. And he, he made me an offer and I didn't have the thing with Doug. And I said, and I didn't know if they were going to get sorted out or not. And I said, okay, he, he took me out, put me in the car, went, went over to Red Bank, New Jersey, where their offices were at the time. And they drew up a, he had somebody come in and they drew up a contract that night, made it that night. It was like, 10, 11 o'clock at night, we made the, we made the contract. That was it right there. So now this is also Roger. So I go through the rest of my year with Doug, um, and finish. And then, uh, you know, your contracts usually end on the 31st of, of December and mine, mine was like everybody else's and Doug said, okay, you're going to give, you know, you can, we're releasing you and so forth like that. And this is Roger. So between the end of the season, I did my first test at Laguna Seca um, at, uh, don't hold me to the exact date. I think it was like November. Okay, whatever. End of the season. Um, And we were going to do a couple-day test out at Laguna Seca, and we started there. And um, I did that test. And between there and the first race, now remember – that was the year they had the paving issues at Phoenix and it was too rough. So they canceled Phoenix. So the first race was Long Beach. Okay. And it had always been, or most of the time it had been the Phoenix was the opener of Long Beach and then went to Indy for the month of May. And, um, 
but it was too rough and they couldn't get it sorted out and anything like that. But between there and Long Beach, I did 52 test dates. And, you know, and Roger wanted me embedded in the team, working with the engineers, working with Derek, everything, get to know everybody. That was RP. That was just how RP did things, you know, it was. And so that's what we did. And then Long Beach, my first race, and I don't even remember where I qualified, but I qualified pretty well. Anyway, got in, in the race and, and uh, was Dyson with Mario, past Mario, was leading. And I don't know if you remember this, Bruce, but I came out of the last corner on the last lap leading. And I had a uh, not a huge lead, but I was not, not going to get passed between there and the, and the finish line. And uh, ran out of fuel. And I jumped out of the car because remember the Long Beach at front straightaway. I missed the entrance to the pits, and I jumped out of the uh, of the car. And it's slightly, you know, how it kind of goes downhill a little bit. And I got out of the car and tried to push the car down the straightaway. Anyway, ended up finishing third. Um, and then, uh, and it was funny because New York Times, L.A. Times, everything. That was the picture on the on the cover of the magazine, <laughs> uh, um, cover of the newspaper the next day, uh, because, uh, you know, it was just a, kind of a different picture. But that's where it started. And Derek and those guys apologized. He said, we never had a guy that drove on the road courses the way you, you drove in terms of, you know, how, how fast you drove the car for fuel consumption. Again, not I'm not talking about pace, but just, you know, on the gas all the time. So that's that's how it started. And then, of course, the next race was Indy. And I qualified okay, but you're on a team with Mears and Al Senior. You know, these are two legends already there. I mean, I haven't won Indy. I haven't done squat at Indy. And qualified eighth. It was okay, but it wasn't, you know, I mean, listen, don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of people, and myself included, that would take eighth on certain times, but when your teammates are in front of you, um, you know, it's it's eighth is not not that stellar. And um, and then as the race went on, as the race started, you know, everything was okay, but my car, I was not real good. My car was a little off. And Derek, um, Derek, who was one of the best guys on the radio, he, he got me to stop a little out of step of everybody else, including Mario. And um, we changed the car, and then the car was magic. And, of course, the rest is history, you know, as you know. But, um, but it, was a, it was a, you know, it was a, fi- a fantastic um, you know, call from for me for for Derek to do that, and then of course you know the the pass and the spin and then coming back. And I don't know if a lot of people remember, but Howdy Holmes was driving that year, and he and Tom Sneva. I was catching Mario again, and he and Tom Sneva uh, touched going into turn one, and I really thought that Howdy gets a little tired late in the race and. Sneva can be Tom, and anyway, they they touched, and um, but I had backed off coming down the front straightaway, and I just missed Sneva. I mean, just missed him. He kind of spun right down the racing line, and he didn't go one way or the other for the longest period of time, and I almost hit him, you know. 
and uh, but didn't. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm having a little bit of luck today. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. But anyway, that's that's that that started, and uh, and pretty much from that point forward, certainly with Miller um, and with Roger, we were we were pretty much you know um, you know solidified, and everything was was good. So. Great team to be with, super guy, uh, super people, you know. And, and, you know, the great thing about Roger is I don't think there's many people that are more competitive than Roger, and that's the kind of owner you want because he's pushing pushing harder than you are. And from a driver's perspective, that's the guy you want to drive for. The spin and win from your point. Uh, You go into turn one, and there's Mario Andretti, and a lot of people picked him as – one of the favorites to win the race, uh, you know, sentimental reasons. He had a fast car with uh, Newman Haas Racing. So you come up on him in turn one, and if you could just describe the spin and how you were able to save it and how shocked were you that you didn't hit anything. Well, I, uh, a lot of people uh, always ask, you know, why, why turn one? And my car was a little quicker through three and four, and Mario and I were pretty equal through through um, uh, one and two, so I get a little bit more runoff of him coming off of four, and um, and I caught him back up when I went out after that change that I made with with Derek Walker. He made uh, you know get the car a little bit of balance. I was like I was about thirty uh, four seconds or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but about thirty four seconds behind Mario caught him up and got down there. And when we went in, remember that the track's different than it, uh, now than it was then. They had the, uh, the apron, the warm-up lane was, was the apron. Okay. And that, that's now not how it used to be. And so I went in and I, I drafted Mario. He's gone down the front straightaway and moved over toward the pit ball you know, to break the draft, et cetera. And, and then we moved back up. And then when we got to the corner, Mario just, he he was going to take the corner. He wasn't going to roll out of the throttle and back off. Mario never does that. And he, and he shouldn't. But so we just kind of went in like two fighter planes. And then I, I went down onto the apron, almost to the grass. And as I came back up, um, the car just whether it's the white line, the slight change in camber on the track, whatever it is, it just tripped the car. And remember, uh, we don't carry hardly any downforce on those things, particularly at Indy. And the car just started to slide a little bit, and I tried to collect it just a hair, and and it the front started to bite. You know, just started to bite. So I turned it back, and and I was just like, and then I just couldn't control it. And, you know, things started to come around on me. But remember one thing, too, because this is going on quite far, I'm further around turn one than at the beginning or the middle, okay? And that's significant in the outcome because when I spun, I was a little bit more straight and I had, this, I had the front straightaway, uh, I mean, the short shoot to go down. Okay, so it, it gave me a little bit more space, if you like. Okay, 
And, and that's why I didn't go right up and hit the wall, if you see what I'm saying. And so, um, and I spawn and I'm like, oh, you know, uh, I just get in the lead of the Indy 500. Now I'm going to hit the fence, you know, and I was just kind of berating myself and the smoke's going, I hit the brakes, you know, cause I'm just going to hit the wall and the smoke cleared and I'm looking at the turn two sweeps. So I thought, take your foot off the brake. And I took my foot off the brake and got it kind of straightened up. And, okay, now I've stalled the engine. I've now got the clutch back in, okay? Um, but which gear did I take? You got three speed up. Remember, it was a five-speed manual then. Three speed up gears to get out of the pits and then two top gears that were about 250 RPM off. So I go too low. You know, we have no idea how fast we're going. Hell, I was doing 210 or 15 miles an hour when I spun. So you got no idea how fast you're going, what, what gear to take, too high or too low, can stall the car. And if you see me go into three, I mean into two, if you watch the video, you'll see there's another little wiggle of the car, the back end of the car. And that's when I, when I, you know, jump started it and I almost lost it again. And it, as we're sitting here talking today, I still don't remember what gear I picked. Okay. I still don't know. I think I took one of the, the lower of the two top gears, I think, but I don't remember. Um, you know, cause I was pretty busy. I was on the, you know, Radio to Derek after that. Hey, hey, it's me. Uh, the yellows for me. Everything's okay. But um, you know, uh, you know. Uh, but I'm going to need you know new tires. And I really didn't need them that bad because with no downforce, it just spun like a top. So even though they had a little bit of flat spot on them, and it wouldn't have been very comfortable. But if I had had to keep going, I would have just kept going. You know. Until because we weren't that far off of a fuel window anyway. So anyway, but the yellow was out, so it was Derek. And the funny part is, Derek didn't know that. I, you know, because remember, you know, we're we're modernized a little bit now. But think about it. They didn't have it. wasn't live TV. It was the last non-live broadcast. They didn't have the the people set up on the timing were timing and scoring. You know, there wasn't the TV monitor the way they were. And Derek stood behind the pit box, you know, and, you know, they did all their calculations back there because the timing was, you know, the team that was up there timing and scoring were the ones that did it. So that's how it, that's how, that's how it took place. So, and, and Dan Luganville apparently came running in and going, you will not believe what happened. You will not believe what happened. Derek's like, quiet, quiet. I got to figure something out. I got to, you know, re-strategize here. <laughs> So he didn't even really know much until the end of the race. And uh, anyway, that's how it, that's how it was. And then I, I came back and passed Mario in the same place. But uh, this time when I did it, I, I kind of moved up on him and just held my ground a little bit more rather than than uh, going down, you know, that low. So anyway, all good. You beat Mario Andretti. I remember Mario pretty crestfallen afterwards because he really felt that was his best shot. He had a great car, but he just, but you had a better car and you drove a better race. And what was it like to go into victory lane at Indy? You know what? When it first happened, 
you know, okay, she, you see the check flag, you get the check flag, everything, you're, you're elated. But it's also like, you know, because remember, we used to spend three and a half weeks there, you know, for the month of May. So you're a little bit of a bubble burst. And you know what the biggest thing was? You remember that old, you remember you had to pull up on those two tracks to get up onto the, to the winter, two ramps? All I could think about was going in there was like, don't blow it getting it on the ramp. <laughs> that was my biggest concern. I thought I'll look like a real putz if I drive it off the ramp, you know. And uh, and then you just swooped up in the minute. And I'll tell you this true story. You know, the it, you're just overwhelmed. You're 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 just swept away with you know interviews and this and that and and you know morning shows the next morning and you're whisk off to this and whisk off to that. And I remember then the next week is Milwaukee and da da da. And I remember we were back in in like July. I mean, it was a month later or something like that, June June sometime. And we're back and we're doing a test at Michigan. And I was at the whatever hotel in Jackson, Michigan. I'm taking a shower in the morning to get ready to go to the track. And I'm sitting there going, damn, you won the Indy 500. You know, you won the Indy 500. And that's when it really sunk in. It took a while to do it. Yeah, you knew you wanted and all the congratulations and and the parties and the, hey, way to go and, the, you know, all that stuff. And it's great, but you're you're still a little numb to it all. You know what I'm saying? It took, it took about a month for it to settle in to go, you know, hey, that actually happened. You, they can't take that one away from you, you know? So... That was a pretty cool, pretty cool time. In the world of racing, Penske means performance and winning. For good reason. Since 1966, Team Penske has won 44 national championships, 17 in IndyCar alone. And last year, Team Penske claimed its Indianapolis 500 record-extending 19th Indy 500 win with Joseph Newgarden, the latest driver, to win the famed race. Team Penske also won its second straight NASCAR Cup Series championship. In 2022, Penske was the first team in history to win both the IndyCar and the NASCAR Cup Series championships in the same season. Team Penske enters the 2024 NTT IndyCar Series season with 236 IndyCar wins, including 34 500-mile race victories. Those are results that are tough to top, but Penske's legendary reputation for quality and attention to detail makes a statement off the track, too. When you need a truck... Whether for your business or for a household move, Penske Truck Rental has some of the cleanest, newest, and best-maintained vehicles on the road. And we make it easy with personalized support from our associates, flexible reservations, and access to the top technology. With quick pickup and drop-off at more than 2,500 locations across North America, our scale and know-how will keep you covered all helping to ensure you get the right, reliable, fuel-efficient vehicle when and where you need it. On the highways, the raceways, and every pit stop in between, Penske keeps you moving forward. Gain ground with Penske. Get a quote today at PenskeTruckRental.com or 404-872-7000. 
for household rentals. Download the Penske Truck Rental mobile app today. A couple other highlights. An 88, all Penske front row uh, at the Indy 500. And you also won the championship that year. Well, it was fantastic, but that was the one that got away. And if you think about it, I won the Michigan 500 that year. But I was leading the 500 by, I had a lap on mirrors in 88 before the half distance. My car was so good. That's when the, remember the wing mounts broke, the, the adjuster in there? and put me into the fence. And, you know, if that hadn't happened, I mean, you know, listen, it's, I had a lot of luck in 85. So I had a little bad luck in 88, but it was, but it was probably one of the best cars, not just at that race, um, but the whole season was probably the best, one of the best cars I ever drove. Uh, Nigel Bennett design. Remember it was the gold and, and uh, with a green, red, white pinstripe. And uh, it was a fabulous car. The main reason why it was so fantastic was that it was, um, it rolled off the trailer every place we went. The car was pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. It, we didn't have to do a lot to it. Some of the other cars were a lot more, um, how can I say it? They were a lot more sensitive to, uh, you know, things you know, to a setups, you know, you could go to one track and couldn't hit your ass with both hands. And then you go to the next track and it was, you know, car was magic. So, but this car was really, really, really good. So no complaints there. Anyway, 88 was just a, 88 was just a special, uh, a special year. It was just a really special year. And, uh, I can't, you know, I mean, win the championship and secured it, at Laguna Seca, and just yeah, it was just that was just so much good to it. You know what I'm saying? So here you are. You win uh, 17 races in cart. You brought a lot of glamour to the series. Run Miami Vice. You were an actor. You were you dated some of the best looking women there were. What was it like being Danny Sullivan at that time? Um, you know what? It's it was a great time. It was a great experience. Um, I can't complain for any of it. Um, you know, I mean, look, you always want to do, but, and I said, I remember having a conversation with Roger one time and said, Hey, um, you know, RP, if I'm doing too much, um, he said, don't worry, I'll tell you. I said, I don't want it to affect my, I don't want it to affect my, my drive, you know, my driving. And, um, you know, so you got to be careful not to get distracted from that stuff because ultimately you still got to drive, you know, got to drive a you know, race car and try to win races. And, uh, you know, but there's, there's like everything. It's There's good and bad to it and some fabulous moments and and uh, some that weren't. I mean, you know, I got grief from some people about doing the Miami Vice and, and, um, and, and you know, some of them, not, you know, and, and yet it was such a, a great, fun experience. And you know what's really funny? I meet people now and try, they said, we, oh, we loved your Indy 500 win. We really loved you in Miami Vice. You know, so it's, it was just an experience, you know. And, and um, I remember riding back with a bunch of Formula One guys from Indy one year on a plane back when we were living in France and went back to Nice and, and 
I was on the plane with a lot of guys, Bill Nerv, and uh, oh, just a whole bunch of cool tar and a whole bunch of young guys on there, and da 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 da. And they said, and and they said, you know, what what any advice? And I said, yeah, just take every opportunity you can and live it to the fullest because it may not come back to you know, it may not come again, and uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And I tried to kind of live it that way, and you know. Uh, I guess there's some army that you can do this or do that, but um, anyway, that was all good. No complaints. How big a disappointment was it in 90 that the the ride came to an end with Team Penske? The the next year you went over to Pat Patrick and, you know, with the Alfa Romeo, and that wasn't really, um, that program didn't work out very well. No, but it, it was it was on its last legs, and I think Pat knew it. The, the reality was, um, I had I knew in April that I probably was not going to stay at Penske, and not because of anything Roger said or or anything from anybody, but I knew Marlboro was gonna it was going to be two cars. But more importantly, I knew that um, um, that Pennzoil was going to pull out, and I knew that hard and fast mainly because um my brother's best friend is married was married to a Lifke. and um and so they were I was with them one time and they were saying well what are you going to do for next year now that Penzol is going away and I was like what are you talking about and they said oh yeah and I don't think even Roger knew and so first of all you know, Pat's a different guy. He's not Roger Penske, but Jim McGee is something very special or was something very special. And I shouldn't say is because I'm not, you know, I'm not currently driving and, and so forth, but he was a very special guy to drive with. And of course, you know, all, all the team that he had put together there was, you know, fantastic. But just the sad part for, for the whole thing was that, that, you know, the engine just wasn't any good. And which was, you know, Mike Hall was the, you know, was the crew chief, and he's Mike's fantastic. You know, still got a great relationship with him, and you know, all the stuff was was superb, but the engine just wasn't any good. And Giorgio Pianti, the people at Alpha were fantastic. Um, they really wanted to do something, you know. Well, I mean, you know, remember that was where engine leasing really got started. Because Pat gave gave Alpha the engines from from Ilmore for them to basically to copy, you know, and uh, Alpha didn't do a very good job of it. But there you go. But that's that's if you go back and look, that's where engine leasing really started after that, because they realized that if they sold the engines to somebody, they they were theirs to do what they wanted with them, you know. So anyway. Long story short, you know, it was a fabulous year. And the funny part is, uh, it was a great year for me because I still had a contract with Penske. So I got paid from Penske and from Pat Patrick and from Alpha. <laughs> so so from that perspective, but look, I didn't want to leave Penske. Um, and, and it was the best option out there was the Pat deal just because um, there just there just weren't that many options. You know what I'm saying? There just weren't there just weren't that many places to go, 
So what do you do, you know? After uh, you basically ended your career driving for Bruce McCaw at PacWest, um, you know, it was a crash at Michigan, and you later announced your retirement. But from seeing you, the way you seamlessly went into the ABC days working for uh, ABC TV, it didn't, you didn't really seem to look back. Well, you know, there was a couple factors there, okay? I'd gotten hurt, and that, to be honest with you, that wasn't going to stop me from, from um, continuing to drive. Uh, but I didn't get a very, uh, I didn't have a good, uh, a good time with, with one of the guys at, at uh, Bruce McCall was, was great and Ziggy, all the guys that were there, but at, remember Alan Mertens? Yes. Okay. And Alan had a deal where he had a company in England. Well, he's making all these parts, uh, for the thing. And do you remember the huge accident that Mark Wendell had at Brazil? Yes. Okay. Well, that was a part that Alan Mertens had made. And the one thing I thought is I don't want to get in the club back in the day. I'd already been. He wanted me to keep going. Okay. He wanted, I still had a contract. I mean, I walked away from a lot of money on those contracts, but I just thought, you know what? I can get hurt and I can get hurt worse than I think that I can get hurt, you know, than I was hurt. And do I really want to take that chance? And then there was another factor in there. I, I was I was 45 years old, you know. And at some stage, you're kind of going, okay, I'm not as fast as I was. All these young guys are quicker, you know. Um, I've got to be. I've got to really have an unfair advantage, if anything, you know. And Gallus. And then I I kind of had a bitter taste in my mouth with that thing with Gallus because um, he he had an opportunity to do something and he just turned it into a court battle and and he got his hand, ass handed to him and it was so stupid but I, he left me no choice you know and so you know that kind of put a sour taste in my mouth and and so I just kind of was souring a little bit on on. You know, and plus, you know, I got to go back and say, hey, I was I was probably too old for those guys. I wasn't I, I wasn't what I was, you know. And so to be fair, I, was, I wasn't getting, you know, I, I wasn't as competitive as I needed to be. So anyway, um, and then they when I was laying in the hospital bed, they uh, they came to me from ABC and they offered me something, and there was a way to uh, to segue out. Um, and and do something because I just didn't want to get out of the sport. And then once I'd gotten out of that, and there was no opportunity to go back. And to be honest with you, back to our original thing about chasing money and doing all that stuff. The one thing I wanted to do if I was going to stay in racing and it was going to try to have a team like Bobby or anything like that is I didn't want to be chasing money all the time. I liked the more of the, the racing side, the engineering side, the dealing with the people side, all that side of stuff. But I didn't want to spend all my time running around chasing money, you know. And and when I talked to Derek Walker, because remember he had his own team, he was killing himself just running around chasing money. And I didn't have anybody to segue right in. I a big sponsor that just says, hey, if you want to start your team, let's go. We'll do it, you know. Um and uh, Bobby had done that better and was more clever at it than I was on that side. So, 
So, um, you know, good for him, but I, I just, I just didn't see me doing that much time. So anyway, onward and upward, you know. So speaking of onward and upward, what are you doing today? I know that you used to live in Monterey or Carmel and you've now since moved to, to Florida. Well, we sold our house in Pebble Beach because it was a, we had a big house and a big property and it was only two of us and, uh, and one dog. And so we just said we, we wanted, so we sold and then we couldn't find a place to rent or to buy, period. And we were a little bit homeless and we came down with somebody that we, we, we were friends with and had, had invested with and they were bringing a plane down. So we came down and we spent, we did, went to dinner with them one night and then headed up here to Palm Beach. They were in Miami doing family thing and we called some friends and got together with them. And we, they were saying, what are you guys doing? Where are you living? You know? And we said, we told them the story and, and they said, Hey, let us show you around. And, and it turns out the wife was a real estate broker, which we didn't know. She said, let's show us around. And we were just kind of cruising around one day and she took us in and sort of the house that we liked. And we said, well, okay. And we put in an offer and, you know, next thing you know, we, we were, we were in escrow and here comes the move to Florida. <laughs> so, so it was kind of like, and we had spent some time down here and had a place down here before and had lived down here when his dad was over in Naples. And, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, a complete just, you know, through a, through a dart at the map type of thing. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, and then I'm, I still do, I didn't do any last year because of the quarantine issue. So I didn't do any of the Formula One races as the driver steward. And I've done uh, a couple this year, and I've got Mexico City still to go. And they wanted me to do uh, Turkey this weekend, but I was in Europe with Brenda, and I'd already been gone for two weeks. And I said, shit, i got to get back to go. Um, I'm trying to help a group save Palm Beach Raceway to to logistics builders, you know, commercial builders for that. Um, and then I'm still doing our government aviation business. So we've made uh, some big headway on that. We've got a number of contracts in place, so we're growing it. Kind of stalled because nobody could travel um, on the government side for these contracts, so everything kind of got pushed back for for almost eighteen months. So it's all ramped back up. So we're we're pretty active, and then we've you know we've invested in a bunch of stuff and and so forth. So we're I, mean, I tell you what, I don't wake up in the morning with with lack of anything to do. Moving from Pebble Beach to uh, Palm Beach. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of good golf courses around you. Uh, there's a lot uh, a lot of good stuff. But I, um, and we just came back. We, Brendan and I played in the Dunhill Lynx Championship. So over in Scotland. So we, we went over there and played. So we're, we're having a good time. We still ski and uh, she's, she's actually uh, developed into a great golfer. I kind of got going and then, and then started working more and golf went out the window. So, but she's, I think Brenda's playing off of a, I think she's a two or three handicap right now. So she's playing well. So and it's something that we can do. We, we, we traveled and, and uh, I'm involved with a, 
with a water business, a purification business that uses no chemicals. It's all electrolysis. And, you know, so we've got a couple things going. So everything's, it's, it's full tilt, Not, never left. Still working out, as you heard earlier when I was in the gym. So uh, still get in five, five days a week trying to stay fit. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, gets harder as you get older, trust me. Yeah, oh, yeah. And in our final question for 1985, Indianapolis 500 winning driver and 1988 IndyCar champion Danny Sullivan, what is your impression of today's motorsports world? I think IndyCar is about as exciting as I've seen it for a long time. Um, Formula One, which I work in, has been made very exciting now that – there's a number of teams that are getting more competitive, so I'm anxious to see what happens in next year with the new car and the new regulations and the new budget restraints. Um, I, you know, NASCAR seems to be plugging along as, as good and as competitive as ever. Uh, just while we were talking, I was watching an IMSA race from BIR, and that seems good. Um, I, I think racing is good and strong and healthy. You know, it's, uh, I think people like it. You know, I, I think people are enjoying watching it. And when I'm down here in Florida, when I was out at Laguna and I'm on the board still at Laguna Seca and Monterey, uh, you know, there's a lot of demand and, and, uh, still a lot of challenges, but, uh, but it seems healthy. Well, and part of the reason for that interest can be traced back to your days as a driver in IndyCar and Kart and the glorious and glamorous times you had at Team Penske back in the 1980s and 1990s. Danny Sullivan, thank you for your time, and thank you for joining us today on Pit Pass Indy. Always a pleasure, Bruce. Thank you. And that puts a checkered flag on this edition of Pit Pass Indy. We want to thank 1985 Indianapolis 500 winning driver and 1988 kart champion Danny Sullivan for joining us on today's podcast. Along with loyal listeners like you, our guests help make Pit Pass Indy your path to victory lane for all things IndyCar. The season may be over and the championship decided, but Pit Pass Indy will continue to race forward in the offseason with more in-depth interviews featuring the biggest names in the NTT IndyCar series. So please be sure to continue to tune in to Pit Pass Indy. For more IndyCar coverage, follow me at Twitter at Bruce Martin, one word, uppercase B, uppercase M, underscore 500. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to our production team. Executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Recordings and edits were done by me, Bruce Martin. And final mixing was done by Dave Douglas. Learn more at evergreenpodcast.com. Until next time, be sure to keep it out of the wall. 